welcome to Voices of Impact. I'm your host, Isaac Ornstein, a WJC Louder Fellow and a student at Harvard University. On January 15th, I spoke with Ari Ackerman, a serial entrepreneur, strategic investor, and proud philanthropist. He was the founder and CEO of Bunk One before selling it to a PE fund in 2017. Ari is involved in many organizations in the Jewish community, including the JCRC, APAC, Hillel, and UJA. Ari is also a partner and board member of the Derek Jeter-led group that purchased the Miami Marlins in 2017. Please excuse some minor technical difficulties. I think Ari's powerful message will come through regardless. Let's start with your family. So you come from a very distinguished Jewish family. You've described your mother, your grandfather as role models of yours. Can you tell me more about them, who they were as people? First of all, proud of you for doing this as your project on your advocacy at such a young age. is very good for you. And uh, pleasure to, to be doing this for you. Yeah, so in terms of my family, you know, I'm, I say it a lot. I'm always happy and proud to say that my role models in life from my my mother and my grandfather, I lost my mom about uh, 11 years ago, my grandfather about four. And the Yalebas and combination, it told me about Tikkun Olam, repairing the world, making sure he did back as our, as a community. The fact that I have strong Jewish and Zionistic roots is because of them. My mother was born in Israel, my grandfather. I like to say he was literally one of the founders of the state of Israel, uh, very close to Ari Sharon, who was actually at my bar mitzvah. Oh, wow. And, and, and I was actually also even partially named after Ari Sharon. Really? Yeah. I read online he was involved in the physical fitness program of the Haganah before 1948. Talking about my grandfather. Your grandfather. Well, he was... He was one of the founders, and he was a, uh, a uh, leader of the of the. I forgot what it was called, but it was the uh, like the Boy Scouts, right? Sure. And he was a he was a like a strong leader at that. And was always very proud to tell us those stories. That Ari, do you know that I was one of the leaders on the the Scouts? I think it was the Scouts and back in nineteen. Israel was being established, and he was voted on, and all the his friends respected him. So yes, that was something that he was very proud of, and I know. You know, and I understand why he was, because they were founding an amazing state after, you know, thousands of years of exile, turning into the Jewish homeland, and the Holocaust just happened, and a sign of strength um, in the young Jewish community meant everything. And the fact that he was a leader of that is, we should have been so proud. I mean, so proud. Right. Will you speak a little bit to his business career? I understand he was very successful, right. even financing the startup of Carnival Cruises, and reportedly donated hundreds of millions of dollars to Jewish causes, Israeli causes. What did you learn from all of the amazing things that he did? So that's two questions. So his business career, he was an amazing financier, as you just described. But he came after the establishment of the state of Israel. Um, he actually then moved to the United States with my grandmother. My grandmother actually was also one of the founders of the state of Israel. Their family had the first pharmacy in Tel Aviv. And my grandfather and grandmother were great school sweethearts in Italy. Wow. Not just nice, great school sweethearts. What year would that have been? That would have been in the early 40s. That's incredible. Yeah. And um, the great school sweethearts, they lived... And we still go back to the block. He lived right across from each other. We had to actually donate a park, my family, right in between where we used to yell at each other, hi, hi, you know, across the street on Rochelle Boulevard. And um, uh, and so, yeah, so so proud of, of what he did. And then he came to the United States, my grandfather and grandmother, and they started as Hebrew school teachers because it's the only thing they knew. And then, the very first thing they did. Was they came they did, my grandmother had gotten to the University of New Mexico, Albuquerque, New Mexico. And so the two of them came, and my grandfather, just to have money, was a Hebrew school teacher, so my grandmother. And then they moved to Columbus, Ohio, because he transferred to Ohio State, which is where my aunt was born. My mother was the oldest, and she was born in And then they moved to the United States. My aunt was born in Ohio. And because of my aunt, they all then became American citizens. Wow. And um, and they love to tell their stories, stuff like that. And they were in Ohio. And again, he was getting his MBA degree. And from there, he became, um, they moved to Minneapolis afterwards. And in Minneapolis, they became he became the Israeli wonder kid at a company called Piper Jeffrey, which was an investment bank. 
And uh, from you know, from there, he just started developing a reputation as a brilliant statistician, mathematician, financier, and um, started investing in companies. Started buying companies with other people's money. It's something called that he invented the leverage buyout. Sure, Mike Milken gives him credit for. It. Sure, um, the junk bond. And um, so that's essentially how he you know started his career and started buying certain companies and stuff like that. And Carnival Cruise was one of the companies. He didn't he didn't finance it. He actually bought Carnival. We then sold to Teddy Harrison, by the way. And, um, but yeah, so we Carnival, Cartier, uh, Riviera Hotel in Las Vegas. He was, you know, my idol in so many ways, including on the business front, because he was a brilliant entrepreneur, was able to give a speech like nobody else could. Massive, massive, charming individual. Most importantly to me, just like a loving, wonderful grandfather who treated me like a son and I loved like a father. Right. And also someone who gave a tremendous amount of charity. And yes, yeah, so that's the second question to that. So not only was he a business, icon, but he was also just a legendary philanthropist, just like my mom. And um, my grandfather would host all sorts of charitable events at his home when he was in New York, and then he moved to Los Angeles, and I went to so many, and he had every famous person, and a lot of the charities were, for my, my mother, it was all Jewish charities, and my grandfather was mostly Jewish charities. Interesting. Yeah. And, um, uh, and he hosted every, all prime ministers and leaders, and donated, as you said, millions and millions of dollars to Jewish classes. Um, and Israel causes, you know, always taught us that you can give. Okay, so give more than what you're capable of giving. That's what we tried to like, follow and emulate through the years. As well. Right. Let's come back to you for a second. Um, you attended the Ramaz School on the East Side. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience there? And I'm also curious if your experience at Ramaz helped propel your activism, which we'll also come back to. Okay, great. Yeah, I mean, well, I loved Ramaz. Ramaz is where I went to high school. Most people don't know that. I went to Yeshiva High School because I had to do afterwards and, you know, live more of a secular life. And even at Ramaz, um, let's just say I wasn't the most religious person in the school. And then we had a group of guys and girls that were like the, you know, maybe I shouldn't say it's like, that. Yeah, we went out here with a fight and I go out people. Sure. You know what I mean? And sure. you don't, the last part of that group. But, but what, it, what it gave me was an incredible group of friends who are just so bedsheet, first of all, but also these active Jewish leaders and, you know, caring about Israel and caring about Jewish causes. If you go to Ramaz, it's just instilled in you. Right. And that's what I got out of Ramaz. You know, not necessarily being the most religious Jew, but being a very, very proud Jew. Right. And, you know, aside from my family, I definitely give credit to the, to my high school um, for, for teaching that. Although, you know, when I was in high school, I didn't really know what was happening. You know, you just sort of- Right, I feel like that happens, happens to a lot of people. Right, you go to these rallies, and the rabbi looks to you, who, by the way, was the person that married my wife and I, and they still love him. I call him the rabbi, rabbi, the rabbi, you know, their head rabbi, rabbi of rabbis. Right. The rabbi is rabbi. Right. And, uh, you know, so he was just a great leader of the school, and, you know, and uh, just was a place that you just knew you were a proud, strong Jew. And, you know, it's, you know, it was a great stuff. Right. And then from Ramos, you end up at Duke. What did you study? Uh, so yeah, so I went to Duke, and I was the second person ever to even apply to Duke. Wow, because it was there was no Jewish um, situation. I just described myself as not so religious. Do shows I was capable of going, and because a lot of people wouldn't be able to. Like, the kitchen, there wasn't things that was available that is available right now. Dude, um, actually, by right, kind of by sponsoring the Kosher Ultra. Oh, nice. That's all. Um, and so I went to Duke, political science major, and um, was uh, my first. I love politics. I love being involved in the political world and. You know, Duke was actually, it was the first Gulf War at the time and it's kind of a fun place to be in terms of people discussing political ideologies. And, um, you know, I love my experience there. And I understand. Amazing transition from going from Yeshiva High School to Duke where there was, you know, most of my, I went to, I was in a fraternity, which wasn't Jewish. Most of my, a lot of my friends weren't Jewish. So it was like an interesting transition for me. Right. Did that spark any realizations? 
uh, interesting you should say it. So it's, at first I was like, wait a minute, these are other people in the world? Like, I didn't know that. Right. right. It's different to come from the east side to Duke. And you're interested. Truthfully, maybe I missed out on something. You know? Um, so it's interesting you say there's a spark something. Because the first emotion you feel a lot is like, wow, there's this whole world that's open to you. I love experiencing that with Duke. However, what it also did to subscribe, it also brought me back to what was important. And when I said earlier about Ramaz, you didn't know it was happening to you, I realized that in college, mm -hmm. you know, I'm a proud Jew. You know, I was always surrounded by Jews. So I didn't know that. But now that I'm stitching up for being Jewish in a place that isn't so Jewish, right? You know, it really like, okay, that's what's in me now. That's what's really like, you know, something that's one of the most important things in my life. We spoke just before we started recording about your recent trip to Duke with ADL CEO Jonathan Greenblatt. Can you tell me a little bit about your continued involvement in your alma mater? Because I know it's it's very close to your heart. Yeah, I love Duke. I'll always do great things for Duke. Duke hired me uh, last year with the Beyond Duke Service and Leadership Award, um, which uh, they specifically wanted to honor me because of the work I do in the Jewish community. And so, the, not relating to Duke, just most stuff. It's called the Beyond Duke Service Leadership Award because it's not uh, an award because you give it back to Duke. It's an award for doing stuff within the larger community. Got it. So that's why it was an even more, I think, an even greater honor because you recognized um, that it's a time where Jews need support. And here was this alumni that was doing a lot of work on behalf of the Jewish community. And I was honored to be honored by, by my alma mater. And, um, uh, you know, I got to bring my daughter there for the first time and danced on the field. And they were playing the, the song everybody posted to. We could, I have this video on Instagram that, like, I just look at it all the time, dancing, my daughter on, dancing with my daughter on the football field at halftime while they're honoring me at my alma mater for doing Jewish community work. I don't know how. You know. Very surreal. And like an interesting combination of all these different pieces of your life. That's right. It's like, you know, pieces of me. She, my mom used to say pieces of me in terms of things that are important to her. And that was, as I, I describe it like that, because those were all the pieces of me sort of coming together. That's really nice. In such a beautiful way, especially, you know, your family, Jewish community. My wife was there. Um, I had other friends there. My sister came down for the, the trip and uh, and and even introducing me at at the ceremony where they honored me was a, was a very dear friend of mine for many years. She now runs the Jewish Center down there. So it's all these like elements right. brought together. What's the status of Jewish life there now? And also, what are you seeing in terms of anti-Semitism on campus? So yes, yeah, so you asked about Jonathan Greenblatt. And just to address that, um, very dear friend of mine, Jonathan Greenblatt. We actually went to business school together. I was at his wedding, he was at my wedding, and um, so we we just and I love the work that he's doing right now. So he was heading down to Duke for a conference. So he said, why don't you go with me? I said, absolutely. And um, now I was able to go with him, but it, we contacted the Freeman Center. They contacted us almost simultaneously, I think it was, and um, had them had Jonathan come speak at the Freeman Center as well, which is what the Jewish Center all done there. It was too true because the Freeman Center then is the Habash and so we could talk about that. But um, this was at the Freeman Center, which is the, the Duke on Life Jewish campus. And um, then we got to go meet with uh, President Price, who's the president of Duke University, and me, Jonathan, this gentleman, Joel Fleischman, is a real Jewish leader down to Jewish philanthropist as well. And uh, three or four other of the um, head uh, faculty at Duke University, specifically wanting to address the anti-Semitism anti or the making sure that there is no anti-Semitism mm -hmm. on the campus. Is there? Are students experiencing anti-Semitism? No, listen, I think there's anti-Semitism on every campus. I think as long as there's a student for justice in Palestine um, center or you know, club on campus, on any of the college campuses, there's going to be a little bit of a problem. But Duke's done an amazing job keeping those voices as quiet as possible. Right. And that's what we were there to make sure, to make sure that the voices of truth and accuracy and support of a country that is America's greatest ally is the voice that's most loud on these calls on, on Duke campus. Right. And, and it's amazing that was, President Bryce was very supportive. Amazing that you have that partnership in the university leadership it's, it's, to be able to do so those types of things. I mean, to be there in this meeting with Jonathan and a few others 
and listen to President Price say, what can we do for the Jewish students? Right. Which, as you heard, Congress on Capitol Hill was not what your college said. Correct. A few other colleges. Correct. Which was an outrage and an abomination to Jewish students and to humanity that you can't say that, you know, that the intifada and um, from the river to the sea is not a direct call to genocide of the Jews. Right. And it's, it's saying, is a direct call to genocide of Jewish people okay? And they can't even condemn that. I, I, I still boil me to so Right. It's it's good to know that there are partners on Duke. I was speaking to someone recently who's very close to the president of Brown, who's also saying they've had partners there. But it's it's it would be wrong to portray all universities as being you know completely anti-Israel, anti-Jewish when there are people. Unfortunately, we haven't seen nearly enough of that at our university. But it's good to know you're seeing some of that at Duke. Yeah, and there are other schools, University of Florida. There's some notable examples of presidents that have taken a great stance in terms of pro-Israel and stuff like that. But it's unfortunate that what we saw with Harvard, MIT. And um, already MIT and, and Penn, a guy at Penn so hard, um, that that those that those administrators and presidents couldn't say they said. I mean, the, the, there has to be a very strong differentiation between free speech, right? Okay, not every speech is allowed. Hate speech is not allowed, and that's you know this the, the thing that every college president should be speaking loudly and strongly against. Right. And I think that we we both know people who are on the boards of these institutions, people who are not like you, who are not so vocal in speaking up. How do you think those people condone their inaction? Like, why are they comfortable giving money to Jewish causes? Jews, mostly, you know, Jews, Jewish people who are involved in these universities. You know, if that was your question. Yeah. Jewish question. Yeah. Um, listen, I, I can't answer that question because it's not the route that I take and it's not the route that I think is correct in this day and age. I think every Jew and every human who cares about peace and uh, wanting their Jewish friends to feel safe, I think every person has a responsibility and obligation to speak out. Right. And those that don't speak out right now, you know, it's shame on them. It's like, if not now, when? If not now. If you're not going to do it now, when are you going to do it? Right. Let's talk about Bunk One. So you were a very successful entrepreneur before your time doing more work in the Jewish world. Can you tell me a little bit more about Bunk One and what you were trying to build? I love Bunk One. Bunk One, so I, was, I went to Duke undergrad and then I worked on Capitol Hill for a few years for a congressman, Gary Ackerman, who I'm not related to. Love Gary. Yeah, <laughs> That's but, a funny coincidence. Yeah. So it's even funnier. But he has a son, Ari Ackerman, and I have an uncle, Gary. <laughs> I wish they were related. And I had to sign an anti-nepotism contract when I, when I started getting paid by Gary because you're not allowed to pay your, your, your family on Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. Okay, side. So I loved that experience on Capitol Hill. Went to graduate business school at Northwestern. And while I was at Northwestern, I was always very entrepreneurial, knew I wanted to start a business at some point in my life, didn't know I would do it when I was 26 years old. But I had this idea about bringing technology into the summer camp space. And you loved summer camp. I love summer camp. I, was, I still go to summer camps when I can. My friends rent out like camps at the end of the summer and I go and I won best athlete. One of the camps. <laughs> very important. The most important thing I think it's happened being in the camp space. But um, this is with the alumni. So the... Um, Bunk One started when I was in graduate business school. I wrote a business plan for like, a, a venture capital class with a guy named Barry Merkin, nice Jewish guy, but who just passed away, unfortunately. But um, I wrote this business plan. It was called Acker Camps at the time. And I had this idea to bring technology into the summer camp space. And was, you have to imagine the landscape of the world. This was 1999. And, you know, there's no Facebook and Instagram and anything. We're talking before the first iPhone. Before, Long before. iPhone, yeah. Um, people barely had cell phones. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, so a few people did, and they then everybody just walking around looking at staring at phones. And so I had the idea to bring tech technology, as you say, into the space in the camp space. If you did, you go to camp? I went to camp. Where'd you go? I went to Camp Morasha, Camp Pass, a couple camps. 
So the camp space, as you know, like there wasn't, they don't change plates, you know, in silverware in since the 1960s. So, right. to, so to bring like technology into the camp space was really, it was almost a revolution concept. Almost as hard as doing work in a not-for-profit space. <laughs> yes, correct. Because any space has their problems. My problem was trying to convince uh, camp directors that they needed to add this technology. It would make life better for everyone. And so I drove around the country after I graduated. I wrote this business plan, which by the way, got, and so I'll also tell you the story. I wrote this business plan. Um, we presented to Chicago-based venture capitalists. And these venture capitalists, one guy in particular told me it was the worst idea he'd ever heard in his entire life. And I'll tell you exactly what he said to me. I'll never forget it. He said, I'd be doing a disservice to this school if I let you start this company. So I was like, thank you very much. I got very drunk, went to a Cubs game that day. And literally, this was the last semester of school. I was going to start this business. And I got in my car and started driving around the country visiting summer camps. And it was well-received almost right away. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, to the point where I got, I drove around the country, got back to New York, started the company. The first year I had 50 camps. That first summer I was live on CNN describing my my business, you know. And so, because once a parent saw that they were able, and I described the business, they were able to log on and send pictures of their kids in camp, send emails that were printed out for their kids. Once one mom told another mom they were able to do this and the other mom wasn't, sure. immediately spread like wildfire. Absolutely. I went from 50 to 300 camps in the second summer. And, you know, Barry Merkin actually, to close out that loop of the story, um, was so supportive always, despite them saying that it was a terrible idea. He gave me an A in the class. He had me come back to the class a number of times to speak to his students. Because who I was, this guy that believed in the idea, I started the business. And, right. and I ran it for um, close to 18 years and I finally sold it. Uh, and we did lots of amazing things. And I'm happy to talk more about that if you want. But we basically introduced technology to the summer camp space. And you think it's so prevalent right now, you ask me about iPhones. There was nothing back then. Right. So seeing a picture online when your kid was at camp was the most wonderful thing for your mom and your dad when they weren't able to talk to you. It gave them comfort. And then for the camp, it reduced the um, burden of having to tell the parent that everything's okay. Because of the right. And then post-Bunk One, you get involved in the professional sports space. Owner operator of the owner partner of the Miami Marlins. Can you speak a little bit to what it's like about your your role in the Miami Marlins organizations and also as someone who's super pro-Israel um, and super proud of his Jewish identity, what's that intersection like? So, so I'll start with like the Marlins stuff. So yes, yeah, so I did sell um, my company about seven years ago. And after I sold my company, um, I got some business press on the sale. And I had a friend I went to business school actually with. And he said, Ari, I saw you sold your company. I had this uh, business that I think you might be uh, you might be interested in. A guy was putting a group together that you know. you know. So let me tell you that. So told me, you know, on this uh, baseball team and there was this guy named Derek Jeter putting a group together. So those are the kind of meetings you take after you sell a company. Right. Especially for me, you talk about camp and sports. Uh, I love sports. I love baseball. It was really almost Kim the Candy store situation for me, but I played really hard to get because it was a major financial investment involved. But it worked out. I became part of the group um, that, that Derek Jeter initially um, put a group together to, to buy the team. Um, and we bought the team again about six, seven years ago. And it's just been great. You know, I'm proud to be part of this amazing group of um, partners who uh, run a team in, in the right way. You know, it's it's the I'm on the board and being in those meetings is the, is the highest level of intellectual um, interaction that I've experienced in my life. These are massively successful individuals who, you know, put their heart and soul into now the baseball team because, you know, there's a player side, but you also have this business side of the team, which we're really more involved in. And despite me thinking I should be the, the GM, you know, the trades, <laughs> that's not what I do. But I, you know, being on the business side and doing and helping how I can is, is just a kidney cancer, as I said, and a lot of fun. And we made the playoffs this year. I flew to Pittsburgh for a clincher. 
um, got to sit with a lot of our a lot of our guys and um, got to be with a lot of the players until very early in the morning that day. And then we went into the playoffs for the first time in all should prove. Except for the COVID year, we were in the playoffs that year as well. And but this is our first full season as being in the playoffs as an ownership group. And it's just great. It's a lot of fun. But you're also very active in terms of your your Israel activism. You know, so I try to do what I can in terms of um, the Marlins and my my Jewish advocacy. Um, we're, I'm very proud to say that we host Passover at the park at the Marlins Park. We do. I saw a Jewish a Jewish Heritage Day. Sometimes we even have two Jewish Heritage. Days. Wow, good for you. And we 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 bring in a lot of the local Jewish community. And we have a lot of the Maccabees sing, and it's it's a big to do. And this year, I got to to MC. We had a, a pregame um, with a with a, the guy who wrote Choosing Baseball. I'm forgetting his name right now. Um, but you know, so we do lots of things, and I'm very proud to be a part of it. One thing I also want to make note of is that the Miami Marlins were the first team to post uh, a support of Israel on the inst- on, our, on our Instagram right after October seventh. We did it in October. We were the first Major League Baseball team to do so. And that makes me very proud. And I was a part of that. That makes me very proud um, of our organization, our team to do the right thing um, post-October 7th. Right. When we met at the Israel Day Parade back in June or July, you told me that you were looking to build your social media presence. <laughs> Can we talk about how you view social media in combating anti-Semitic and anti-Israel sentiments? Well, I don't know if I said build myself, but what I'm very proud of is the things I do post on social media have been um, very much in terms of my, in line with my promotion Jewish values and Jewish community and the Jewish advocacy work that I do. I was just introduced the other day as a, a Jewish advocate. And I wasn't given any, I didn't give anybody this like trip. And I was like, oh, cool. I, I'm like Sounds sounds pretty accurate. And you know, thank you. Because like, you know, you post all these things and you don't think that you are. And then you still get these amazing responses from people, how I inspire them and how, you know, they, they um, they're, thank you for standing up for our community. Thank you for being a loud voice. And honestly, like, I'm just posting things that mean something to me. Right. Like, I don't, you know, I'm not a social media influencer that has a lot of followers, but if you're, I love when people follow me. It's A-R-I-A-C-K-E-R on Instagram. And I only, I only say that because I want people to see truthful things that are happening to the Jewish community. Right. And when there's an event, when there's a parade in New York, pro-Israel, pro-Jewish, either you're organizing or you're speaking, what makes a really good event? Um, A good Jewish event? Good Jewish event. I mean, you know, it's a lot of ways I can answer that question, but to me, like a, uh, a good Jewish event is a meaningful experience when you learn something, where you're surrounded by people who care and who're self-selected. There's lots of other things people can do on any given night in New York City. Right. I'm mostly in New York, although I do other thing, things in other cities when I get invited to speak in other cities. I love doing that as well. But if we're talking about New York City, like a good event, you know, is when you're surrounded by meaningful people. It's it's peaceful. You know, people are there to learn, to hear truthful statements that speakers give and. Um, what's taking place in the world and how they can make an impact, how people can, you know, support Jewish causes, support Israel right now. So to me, it's like where you, you go to an event and you feel inspired, you're surrounded by people who want to make a difference, and you leave knowing that you have action items that can help right. whatever uh, organization or whatever community you can go there. And, that, and that's a lot of the Jewish events that you so kindly say I organize, because I do organize and I host a lot of events. And we're living in the digital age, and it's very clear that so much is happening online. But there also is something which I think we both agree with. There's something really powerful in coming with a group of people on the street, right? And organizing and hearing other people's thoughts and interacting in person. Yeah, there's nothing that beats in person. You know, we all experienced COVID. I actually was chair of um, something called Cabinet, which is Jewish Federation's 30s and 40s leadership division during COVID. And, you know, so I was the chair of this and I had to, me and my partner had to run these meetings and it was all Zoom. 
and we did the best we possibly could. And I'm very proud of that year being uh, chair while, while you know we were all um, in isolation. But there's nothing there's not there's nothing that replaces being in person, right? And the energy and the camaraderie that you feel when you're with, standing next to you and high fiving and hugging and singing along with and chanting along with um, fellow Jews and non Jews who share your support and passion for the causes that are important. Let's talk more about your experience as the co-chair of the Young Leadership Cabinet. How do we get more young people engaged in Jewish life in America? What's the key? It's an excellent question. That's why I love what you're doing. I'll always, people ask me to be on their podcast. Anybody who's under 25, because <laughs> uh, it's great because that's you're our future. You're the people that like we need and you're the ones that are suffering the most. I mean, we all see the, the, the polls that have taken place, um, you know, in terms of anybody 18 to 24. Where are they? Are they siding with Hamas or are they siding with Israel? I can't believe that's a question people are asking. And a recent the poll are, are 60, 40, 70, whatever the numbers are right. against them. And that was a Harvard poll was, that suggested that a majority of young Americans support Israel handing over territory to Hamas. People like that to me don't know the history. They aren't educated as to what Hamas does, who they are. I mean, I'm not on TikTok, but I understand that TikTok doesn't even discuss what happened on October 7th. It's purely that Israel is fighting or killing without any reason or rationale for what they're doing, it, it, it's mind-boggling. You know, so the, they, the polls are like that because they're just, a lot of times it's it's not, you know, there's, there's not an education there that I'm ashamed to place. Like, listen, that's not the only reason. There is also anti-Semitism that's just blatant right. that happens as well. And a lot of the numbers play out in that respect too. But if we could just educate the ones that want to be educated, the numbers wouldn't be as bad. Anybody over 60, it's 95 to 5 pro-Israel. Right. Way. You know, right. they've been through life. They know what Hamas is. It's a brutal, nasty terrorist organization, plain and simple. Right. And in terms of shifting that narrative, there's so many organizational players that feel that this falls to them, right? You've got JCRC, APAC, Hillel, you know, here we have UJA. As you think about, you know, splitting your time between different organizations, where do you feel like, like, who, who does this fall to? Who's going to be instrumental in changing things? I, yeah, I don't, you know, organizations are important, raising money, organizing, uh, where money goes. And, um, you know, I'm proud of being on the board of UJA. I'm on the board also of the Jewish Federation of North America. I've sat on the board of GCRC for many years. Um, I've sat on other boards as well. But to me, you know, everybody has to take responsibility. It's not just in the organizations. You asked me a question earlier about people who aren't involved. You know, come on, now's the time. Right. Like everybody has to step up and see like this. The world is a dangerous place, right? You know, especially for Jews, especially for college Jews, um, especially on certain campuses. Our, you're very, you're in a dangerous place, right? Um, so everybody has to stand up for for what's right. I mean, everybody has kids and siblings and nieces and nephews and parents, and you know, we we have a society that that needs to say, okay, I want to protect people that are need protecting, right? And by the way, the Jews are the first people to stand in line when it, when a minority group gets attacked. Right. We were the first people. You know, my my grandfather talked about him earlier. He was a civil rights leader. He was a friend of Martin Luther King Jr.'s, and today he's Martin Luther King Jr. And it's like he and I'm very proud of that. We're very proud that he's a civil rights leader. But where is that community now for us? I'm not right. saying everybody. I have a lot of friends who have been very supportive. But overall, we're we're seeing a lot of silence. And that is completely unacceptable for people that have been there for them and for just people that are very scared in this world right now, what's being said on the streets of Manhattan, Europe, all over the world. It's just and what do you hear from your non Jewish friends? Um, so I always get so like I get goosebumps when I get an, an email or text from somebody who's not Jewish. I love my Jewish friends, obviously, but when somebody who's not Jewish reaches out to me, it just means everything, you know. And so, 
I've been on Fox News encouraging that, encouraging friends who are not Jewish to please reach out to your Jewish friends right now. We are in need of your support. We do not want to feel alone and isolated. And so that to me is an important message. You know, it's it's the world. Again, we support them. We need your support. Right. We thank the ones that really have been vocal support. Right. Let's let's talk about that Fox News appearance. So you said that the surge in anti-Semitism is among the main issues that will determine how you vote as an independent, I understand. Which way are you leaning? What are your thoughts on the 2024 election? Yeah, so for me, like the 2024 election, you know, I was never really a one-issue voter. I don't really like to continue to describe myself like that because if even if somebody supported my one-issue, but they were so horrific on worldviews or whatever it was, I wouldn't support them. But I'm looking for a candidate that understands that I don't feel safe right Mm-hmm. I'm looking for a candidate that understands that my son and my daughter need to have a future when they feel safe. And do you think they have a future? Does it feel that way now? I don't like to be completely pessimistic because I do have a son and a daughter. So how do you, I will I will answer yes, they have a future in this country, but the future is not secure. Mm-hmm. You know, and we have to make sure with our institutions and our political leaders and ground support all over this country that people understand that as I said earlier, hate speech is not free speech. And we have to make sure that whatever's taking place, Jews can feel safe in this country. And, you know, my one that, you know, one issue that I'm voting on right now is making sure that the Jews have a place in the United States. Right. And what needs to be done on our part? How are we going to make that happen? What needs to be done? I, I as you say, I think voting is very important. And I think when they get into the final two candidates and they're debating on stage. And they, you know, I haven't heard this in all the candidates when they've been interviewed in town halls and stuff like that. I want to hear them say, yes, I support my Jewish community in the United States. I support Israel in their defensive fight against a terrorist organization. Hamas is a terrorist organization. They attacked Israel. Israel did not ask for this war, want this war. They tried to make sure this war didn't happen, but they had no choice but to have a defensive war against a terrorist organization who is right next door to them, who came across their border, murdered, raped, killed women, children, elderly. That's completely unacceptable. And I want a candidate to say that. And I want a candidate to say it will never happen again. It will never happen to any Jew in this country where they shouldn't feel safe to walk on the streets with a mug and David. Right. There. Are you hearing more of your friends shifting rightward, looking more towards the Republican Party? You know, it's an interesting question because, I've, you know, as, as we've seen votes go lately, the Republicans have voted more strongly when they condemn anti-Semitism, when there's votes for Israel. But I can't say that the Democratic Party is against this. I think there are sections in the Democratic Party that are against this. You know, and I think we know who those people are. And, you know, those are the people that I, I would not vote for. But there are people, and I can I, I commend Joe Biden for his um, support of Israel and allowing them to do what they need to do with Hamas. And other as well. I want to make sure that continues, and I want to make sure that he continues to have a strong voice um, for Israel. We've seen amazing support from people like Richie Torres, and you know he actually happens to be my congressional representative. But people who are not Jewish who understand this is not a question of pro-Israel, pro-Palestinian. It's a question of you know what's right, what's moral, what's what's pro-humanity, and it is powerful to hear those voices. Richie's my, he's a great. <laughs> Richie is like what he posts every single day on his Twitter account. Or X. If you don't read his stuff or agree with everything that Richie says, I, I don't even. That, that, those are my beliefs. Right. Exactly and there are a couple other people that are doing really positive work on social media. Montana Tucker, Lizzie Savetsky, 
Montana and Lizzie are both very dear friends of mine, and they are Jewish heroes to me. The fact that they have a, a you know the following that they do, and they stand up every single day so bravely, so proudly. I I tell them this every time I see them. I don't know; they probably get sick of me saying it. Tonight, <laughs> so like friends, you know. I just I honestly I'm so proud of them. I love them. I love what they do, and may they continue just to stand up as strong, proud Jews. Montana, I the I had the the um. The joy of introducing her. She got an award actually from a Holocaust organization last year. And I, was, I did the introduction when she did the award. And it's, you know, she deserves it, as does Lizzie. Any accolades they get and any support they get, I hope people continue to support them because they get a lot of hate. So they need our support and I hope they continue to get it because they deserve it. Right. I want to ask you two more questions before we finish off. One is um, more personal. So you clearly know how to throw a party, entertain guests. Some of the people you posted in your home, John McCain, Andrew Cuomo, Michael Bloomberg, among others. Lizzie Montana. Lizzie Montana. We can't forget anyone. How have you mastered the art of hosting? Oh, that's very good. But I can answer that very easily. My mom was the ultimate hostess. The ultimate hostess. My sister and I used to joke, and my grandfather also, but my mom, being growing up in her home, in our home, we literally thought we our living room was a Jewish catering home because she had every Jewish organization come to the apartment, she gave the speech. She made everybody feel warm and welcoming every single time. And she hosted this these legendary um, Yom Kippur breakfasts. That I mean, every Jewish uh, you know, was they weren't called influencers yet, but every Jewish notable before Bunkwan, before social media. <laughs> but everybody was there, and she just knew how to do it. And I, I, you know, was proudly able to do it in my way in my apartment as well. And I had, as you, you described, so many influential political leaders and other. Uh, leaders in my apartment. And I just, I love it. I love when people come. I love when people meet each other. One of my passions in life is Jewish continuity. I also had a Jewish dating app. I was going to say, we didn't even talk about tribe. Tribe, I had a Jewish dating app because of my passions for making sure that Jewish continuity exists and, and Jewish boys and Jewish girls meet each other. So by the way, if anybody in the audience is single, have them come to Ari Ackerman. I set people up all the time. And it's, you know, I want to make sure that people are meeting. And that's part of the reason I love parties and throwing them and being around people, like feed, somebody said this, they really feed off the energy of other people, really do. And I love being involved. And people say I'm all over the place because I love, you know, I love being there. I love supporting people that I love and I love supporting organizations. All right, fantastic. My last question for you, would you consider moving to Israel? Um, I have a wife and two, ch- two kids, so it would be a, it would be a discussion, but we have discussed it. You have discussed so, it. We've discussed moving other places, we've discussed um, the world, um, but I am also a very proud and strong New Yorker. So it'll be a very tough thing for me to leave. I'm an amazingly proud American. Um, one of the things I love the most is this country. And I always want to do all I can for the Jewish world, but I'm an American, a proud American. So it would be a major change, but it's it's not out of the Not out of the picture. Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Thank you for doing all your you know, thank you for being a strong voice at such a young age. Your mom's amazing, but I'm sure she'll she'll appreciate the shout out. And all the work that she does. And the way she raised you, I got to talk to her. Maybe we can have a lunch. We should have a lunch. So she what she did right. And, um, you know, great job interviewing. Great job doing, you know, all the work you do. Thank you, Ari. I appreciate it.